Well, it's uh, great to be together again today, and just let me say how happy I am to be in this circle. Has this worship not been amazing? Uh, What an incredible encouragement. Thank you to the team uh, for leading us. Hey, I know some of you may be uh, new in the circle today, and let me just let you know we are in the middle of an exciting series that we're calling Thicker Than Water. And in this series, we're looking at seven of the major biblical covenants that frame the whole storyline of the Bible. And uh, some of you would just hear words like biblical covenants, and you'll like start to glaze, I imagine. You'll begin to wonder, why are we doing that? With all the different topics we could be exploring, why that particular topic? Well, the answer is really twofold. One is because If you really are interested in knowing Jesus, and I think that's probably the big reason why a lot of us come into the life of a church body is we want to know him more and more. If you really want to get him and what he's come to do and what he offers to us and what the real meaning of Good Friday and Easter are in their fullest possible measure, you need to know the backstory. You really benefit tremendously from knowing what Jesus came to fulfill. And that's why the covenants are so important. Secondly, the covenants are these amazing lenses for life. They are, they are sort of God's practical instructions for making the most of life. And so studying them gives us real takeaways, real to-dos for our time that are every bit as relevant as they were when he first articulated these visions to the biblical people. So I'm really excited about the series, and I hope that if you've been along for the ride so far, you've gotten some value from it already, and if you haven't, that you'll go back and maybe pick up some of the earlier installments in this series. How many of you have ever made a covenant yourself? How many of you can name a covenant? Maybe you, um, you went to a, a, a marriage altar someplace and you said those things to each other, or, or perhaps you made a, a a covenant with a group of friends. Like I, I have a group of, of, of guys that I meet with. We've covenanted to meet together every year and just do life together and check in with each other. Uh, maybe you made a covenant to a group of teammates as you went after a goal together of what each of you would bring to that process. Or maybe you entered into a, uh, a covenant to join a community or a club or, or a church. If you've got anything like that kind of experience in your repertoire, then you probably, you're ahead of the game. You understand that a covenant is fundamentally a circle of commitment. And as each person brings something to that circle, uh, it just lifts the experience. It lifts the quality of thriving for everybody uh, in that particular circle. And if either party in that kind of an arrangement fails to bring what it is that they've promised, then you know that there are issues that come. Uh, there are problems to be reckoned with when there's a breakdown in the covenant. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at the very first of these seven major biblical covenants uh, and, and examined something called the Edenic Covenant. Uh, And Pete led us through that great study on the covenant God made with the first inhabitants, the first human beings uh, in Eden. And the Edenic covenant was basically God's way of establishing the lifelines by which the creation is meant to work most effectively. And, and, And basically God says, I want you to respect these lines, and if you do, it's gonna go so much better for you. 
Uh, sadly, we know our, our first forebearers, Adam and Eve, you know, broke the covenant. They, they crossed the lines. They, they um, severed a lot of these connections that were crucial to life. And that created issues, right? Serious issues, what theologians call the fall. And as we read along in the Bible from that particular point, we watch these issues starting to really compound themselves. We start seeing sin insinuating itself into individual character and into the way relationships work, and it takes over whole families and and then messes up societies. And civilization gets so bad, in fact, the Bible says so wicked, so filled with evil, that uh, God performs what, what amounts to a fundamental reset of the whole thing. And we looked at that whole reset, the the story of Noah and the flood last week, and and we grappled with just how hard it is to take in that God would would do something that basically wiped out the world. But I tried to suggest to you that actually the most important thing, or the big question to really ask, the big puzzle to really solve, is why wasn't God done with life right there? Why did God continue the experiment when it had gotten so messed up, when human beings had this incredible gift and they couldn't do even the most basic things to really reverence the life they'd been given? Well, the answer, as I suggested last week, is is found in who God is. God is a being of grace. Uh, at, At the root of it all, God is a being of unmerited favor. That's what the word grace really means. God is a being who chooses to lavish opportunity, benefit, goodness, even where it isn't deserved. And we see that favor being expressed in so many ways. In fact, the story of the Bible is really a story of grace working its way out in its various forms. And one of the forms is, is what we would call original grace. It's this amazing world that God uh, created, this universe God made. It was original grace. He didn't have to do that. He was totally self-sufficient. Uh, he could have spent the rest of, of eternity just enjoying himself. Uh, and yet, God chooses to externalize life so that others can experience something of the joy he knows in being life itself. So we see that original grace uh, as the first expression of God's goodness. And then we watch as God uh, brings into the world what I'm going to call common grace. I mean, God could have just stopped the whole uh, world experiment uh, at the time of the flood, but he doesn't do that. He extends favor to humanity. Uh, He gives an opportunity for Noah and his family and animals and seeds to be carried forward on this ark and to begin the experiment again. And this decision to keep sustaining the conditions for life is what theologians call common grace. Common grace is the fact that you got up this morning and it never even crossed your mind. Boy, I sure hope gravity works today. Sure hope I don't just fly off the planet. You know? Gosh, I sure hope there's air out there today. You know, it's just one of the common graces that we, that we enjoy all the time. 
And so in the second covenant God makes, the one with Noah, God promises to extend this grace in an ongoing way to continue human history, but he also asks something of Noah. Covenants always involve, again, people bringing something from two sides, and, and, and he asks Noah and his descendants to understand very clearly that even though God is going to allow life continue, there's going to be an accounting one day. There's going to be a moment down the road someplace where there's a final accounting for how we have reverenced life, how we've cared for each other, and all of the opportunities God has given us. There will, become, there will be an ultimate flood, not of water, but thicker than water, of love and justice one day, and there will be some accountability at that time. So these are the two big takeaways from the first two covenants. This idea of this call to respect the lines God sets up of, 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 of communion with him and community with each other and custody of the creation and caution around certain things. And then secondly, that we are to be people that are just uncommonly oriented towards reverencing life, especially vulnerable life, especially hurting life. Okay, so with that as a baseline, history starts to move forward again. And, and, and the human tendency to, to, to break the lines and to fail to reverence life continues to reassert itself. And so God moves now into an, another stage of the enterprise of trying to roll out um, more of his grace. And, and he embarks upon what you would have to call like the biggest recovery act in history. He initiates a huge recovery act that is going to have a ripple effect all across the planet and down through time and whose outworkings actually account for the fact that you're listening to me today, that we're here together. We are a distant ripple of this recovery act that God institutes. And he institutes this whole movement in an encounter with another family. God works in households and with individuals again and again. This is his pattern. It's, it's the ripple effect that goes out from individual and familial life that makes the biggest impact. And so he meets up with this guy. He finds this, this family living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, or Ur of the Chaldees, as it's sometimes called, in a place that is now known as Iraq. We've heard of that place, right? So he comes to this particular family. Genesis 12 describes the moment like this. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Go from here, out there. Now you need to understand that Abram is doing just fine right where he is. A Abram is not looking to go on a mission. Uh, he's not so restless and uncomfortable where he is that, it, that he's thinking to himself, I need to make a change. On the contrary, Abram is a wealthy guy. He's surrounded by a nice family. He's living in a great neighborhood. But God says, I want you to get up and I want you to go from here. And Abram asks, where? And God says, to the land that I will show you. 
I'm sorry, says Abe. This is my imagination. I, he, he says, I'm sorry, God. I, I think the Zoom call froze. I think, I think the line dropped for just a second. I, I didn't actually hear. Where is it that you're asking me to go? And God says, to the land that I will show you. You'll be given further instructions as you're on your way. Have you ever heard the phrase, walk by faith? You ever heard that phrase, walk by faith? Well, this is where it came from. This is where it all began. This whole notion of walking by faith, of going before you know all about where you're going. This is the idea of just following on the basis of your trust in the one who's calling you to go. And when centuries later, a a, a rabbi from Nazareth shows up and, and he talks to this group of common fishermen as they're working by the lakeside of Galilee, and he says, come follow me. And he doesn't fill in a whole lot more of the detail than that instruction. And they lay down their nets and they follow after him. That's a walk by faith. And that's the walk that you and I are continued to be invited to undertake for ourselves in this time. Why would someone answer a call like that? I'm I'm kind of just, maybe I'm a skeptic, but I mean, what in the world would make me want to answer a call like that? And, and, And I'm reckoning that maybe the thing that could make a person be willing to get up and go like that is because somehow in some way they have a sense that there will be blessings that they will find by going, that they can't get by staying, and that one of those blessings might actually be the chance to be used as a vessel of blessing for other people. And, and this is what's going on in the story of Abraham. And I want to suggest to you, this is what's going on in the story of our encounter with Jesus. The covenant that God invites Abram into is one in which God promises blessings to Abraham and one incredibly audacious blessing to the world through Abram. And the blessings that God promises to this fellow Abram and to his wife Sarai can be described in terms of three important words. Legacy, love, and land. Legacy, love, and land. First, God promises Abraham a stunning legacy. And I promise you, just quick asterisk on this, this matters to you. And this matters to me. And it's not just a historical survey we're doing here. I'm, I'm, I'm setting this up to show you why what Jesus invites us to do and to be about is so important. The first, though, we need to understand is that, is that Abram gets promised a legacy. Now, when we meet him in, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram and his wife Sarai are childless. That's not good news in the ancient world to be childless. Maybe in, in other times in history, it's a tough thing to be childless. Sometimes it's a blessing to be childless because it frees you up to do other things. But in this case, 
They don't have a child. They're in their 70s. It's not looking like children are in their future. And God makes them this staggering promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you, your family, into a great nation. And later on, God reiterates this, and he makes it even more graphic. He says, he takes Abram outside in the middle of the night, and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. That many. And then a little further on, God says, no longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, God says. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you, even though you have nothing right now. Now, because I haven't heard any of you go, wow, what a cool promise. What an amazing thing. Let me try and put this in, in maybe some more contemporary terms. I want to invite you to imagine that you um, and your spouse have, have, have started a, a business. And uh, you are uh, operating the business out of your house. Uh, you have um, noticed that there's this whole new d uh, distribution channel called the internet, and you could sell stuff on it. And you have a very limited product line, but you're starting to, to sell on this. Now, it is, a, it is a shoestring operation. I mean, you don't actually have enough um, resources to, to set up your house so that you can operate a hairdryer and the computer server that runs this operation at the same time. In fact, when, when your spouse fires up the hairdryer, blows the fuses in the house. And, and it's so hard to sell, and you're, so, you're working so hard to sell, you've got a few employees working in the house with you, and you've set this thing up as sort of an incentive process that, that when you actually do make a sale online, uh, the computer's... Uh, signals a bell and a bell rings and everybody on the team gathers around the screen and looks at it, the screen to see who bought what so they can figure out how, how to maybe do this again. You, are you getting this picture? This is the, the storyline. And, and, and the name of the company that you have at this time is, 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 is Cadabra. Kind of from, you know, Abracadabra. Like you want people to sort of magically be able to get stuff. So imagine God comes to you and he, and he says to you and to your spouse, hey, listen, um, I've been watching this whole operation and, and I'm, I just want to say, get rid of the bell. And you say, why? Because it's ringing is going to drive you crazy. Uh, you see, I am going to make you very fruitful. I mean, I am going to do amazing. I am going to give you a legacy. 
I am going to change things through you. It's going to blow your mind. Your people and your products are going to multiply and multiply and multiply till your distribution system goes all around the globe. Trust me, I'll make you extremely fruitful. Billions of people from every country and cult and, and culture are going to know your name one day. They will feel your impact on their lives. Jeff and Mackenzie, he says to this couple, no longer will your company be called Kadabra, it will be called Amazon. This is the kind of exponential growth, the unbelievable, unlikely kind of impact that God is promising to Abraham and to Sarah. They don't even have a single kid. (laughs) But God says, trust me, I will make you very fruitful, a father of many nations. And by the way, today, billions of Jews, Christians, and Muslims all across every country on the planet refer to him as Father Abraham. Why? Because God is a covenant keeper. And those who enter into covenants with him, often see amazing things come from that relationship. So the first promise God makes in this covenant, and I hope you hold on to this in your head, is this, is, is this promise to give his servant a stunning legacy. The second promise is to provide him with an exceptional love, a special kind of relationship. Uh, He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, and I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you. I will be committed to you. This is a covenant We've talked about original grace. We've talked about common grace. This is a covenant to special grace, to a special concern and interest in in this family. Um, I I was struggling to sort of find a way of describing how I think about that kind of a connection, and I thought back to a relationship that I had when I was in college. When I was in college, I was the head of the student government, and it brought me into contact with lots of, of older people, adults, um, with more experience than I, than I had. And one of them was the dean of undergraduate studies at my college, and he was a man by the name of Martin Griffin. Uh, Martin Griffin looked a little bit like John Cleese of Monty Python fame, if you know, remember that guy. Uh, and uh, was like as brilliant as John Cleese. He was just an incredibly intelligent man. Martin loved history. He loved the Latin mass. He was ticked off they'd ever translated it into English, felt like the beauty of the Latin mass was uh, unrepeatable. He, he loved big bowls of vanilla ice cream, and, and he loved the beauty of well-chosen words. And Martin knew how to use words. In fact, so much so that just to sit and listen to Martin Griffin opine on almost any topic you could imagine was like listening to good or great music. In fact, so eloquent uh, and witty were the, the written communications of Martin Griffin that, that the, um, the office memos 
that he sent around. People compiled them and saved them and shared them like they were works of art because they were. I mean, they were just beautiful expressions of, of the elegant and, and wise heart and mind of this incredible man. I, to this day, I do not know why Martin Griffin chose to love me, but he did. I know he did. He chose me. And, and he, in a, like a fatherly way, uh, he invested in me. Uh, he would uh, bring me into his office. We would have dinners together. We would have long conversations on whatever it was that I was curious about. And he just poured his life into me in this um, remarkable way. He taught me about leadership. He taught me about uh, friendship. He taught me about so many. He taught me about, about the way institutions work and how people think. Uh, Martin um, opened doors of opportunity for me. He, he protected me from things that could have been a, a real problem for me. I did not in any way ever merit this consideration. It was special grace. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I could not have summoned this. It was just given to me in this incredible way. And part of what made it so special is that after I left the university, it was passed down to my younger brother who had shown up at the university. And Martin did this for my brother Jeff. And then as my brother Jeff moved on, Martin did it for our even younger brother, Tori. And in a sense, generation after generation, he just continued blessing my family. In a much larger and far more significant sense, God commits himself to this sort of relationship with Abraham and with his family. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. And then God goes a step further. And alongside a commitment to giving Abraham a stunning legacy and an exceptional love, God offers, thirdly, a promised land. Now, up to this point, Abraham, at least recently in the story, has been mainly a wanderer. He got up when God first gave the instructions, and for the next 20 years, he's just following. He's going and doing what God calls him to do. Not perfectly, but repeatedly and continuously, he's he keeps leaning in to responding to God's calling. And so when we meet him in, in this section we're about to look at, it's, it's, as I said, it's decades later. Abram is now in his 90s, and God says, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. In other words, you're not going to be a sojourner, an alien, and a wanderer forever. I'm going to give you a home. I'm making a place for you. And the land of which he speaks will be the birthplace, and it will be the birthright of countless other figures that will meet down the biblical trail after this. This will be the set. This will be the environment where so much happens. And one day, it will be on this land that a baby will be born in Bethlehem and kick off the next major or the final most important part of this great restoration act that God is working out. 
And it will be on this land that God's talking about to Abraham now that the church of Jesus Christ will be established and the Amazon-like ripple effect will go out and create this church and draw you and me into this part of the story. Legacy, love, and land. This is the threefold promise that God makes to Abraham. And this is the promise that Jesus, when he does his ministry, picks up and expands. As he says to us, and to the group of 12 disciples, I want you to go into all the world and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And, and I'm gonna give you a legacy that's gonna change history. And Jesus says, I want you to, to come with me and eat with me and, and experience life with me. I'm gonna pour myself into you. I'm gonna shape your character. I'm gonna have a special relationship of grace with you. And I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to help you extend a land, not one you can see with your eyes, but a spiritual kingdom that will spread out and alter everything. Jesus will fulfill these promises made to Abraham in an even more limited sense. Like the other covenants that um, we've studied along the way, this covenant also asks something of its human partner. Um, The Lord says here, I'm God Almighty. Abraham, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I'm gonna bless you but I want you to walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Basically what God is saying here is that I'm gonna do all of these great things, but as you follow me, as you obey me, as you keep going where I'm calling you to go and doing the things that I'm calling you to do, I want you to show your faith in me when it's hard, when it's actually painful to do it, I want you to keep following after me. And then to provide a very practical and unforgettable application of this test, God says this, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Now it's really important we get this. Uh, Paul will talk about this in some of his writings later in the New Testament, but it's important to understand the tremendous symbolism in this circumcision thing. God is basically saying to Abraham and his descendants, following me and following my way will sometimes be painful. It will sometimes involve cutting away things that are precious to you. Right? Right? You know, I can imagine Abraham going, ooh, good thing I'm older than eight days old. And God says, no, you are to be circumcised. We're gonna start with you. Um, It's God's way of saying that following me is gonna involve some cuts and sacrifices that others will frankly not be willing to make. As far as we know, the people beyond Abraham's family did not go in for this tradition. It became uniquely a Hebrew thing. Um... Jesus will one day come and say the same 
Jesus will one day come and actually fulfill this image more fully, but call for the circumcision of our hearts. Jesus will one day come and say, whoever would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after me. So as I said at the start, one of the main reasons we study the Old Testament covenants is because they help us understand the new covenant that Jesus is all about. God told Abraham there was a reason he was giving him the legacy of a huge family. It was the people we will come to know as the children of Israel, the forebearers of the Messiah. There was a reason God was offering to Abraham and his descendants a special love relationship with him because it would help to picture the special love relationship God would have with his church where Jesus would come to say, you're my bride, you're my bride. And there was a reason God was going to give the Hebrew people a promised land which would sort of foreshadow the notion of the kingdom that Jesus would speak about. It was all of this was for the purpose of an audacious impact. And God describes it like this. So that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing that reaches everybody. What do you think he meant? What do you think he was talking about? What kind of universal blessing was God's covenant with Abraham setting up, laying the groundwork for? Well, we're going to answer that question in further ways in days to come. In fact, I think the fullness of that answer will be amazing to us and inspiring to us as we come to understand more of the story. But let me just say in closing, closing that Abraham is not the last one he asks to walk by faith. He's not the last one. He's the first one, in a sense. Maybe you are in your own version of Ur of the Chaldeans right now. As hard and difficult as the last year may have been, you may just be actually doing okay right now. You may be reasonably comfortable right now. And it's possible that God is coming to you right now and calling you out on a new adventure. It's possible that God is is asking you to walk by faith with him in a fresh way, in a deeper, in a, in a bolder way than you have in the past. It's possible that he's saying, basically, I want you to follow me to the land that I will show you. And you have questions. No, well, I'd like to know what the deal is before I sign up for this. And he says, no, follow me, and then I'll show you the deal along the way. It's possible that he's calling you to that kind of a commitment right now. It's possibly saying to you, I'm going to ask you to make some cuts, some sacrifices in the service of something bigger. But as you're faithful, he says, I'm going to be more than faithful to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless other people through you. But you need to get up and you need to start going. Where could he be calling you to go? Well, 
Maybe he's calling you to go reconcile a relationship that needs healing. Jesus talked about the importance of that a lot. Get up from the altar and go fix that relationship, then come back to me, Jesus says. Maybe he wants you to become the compassionate friend of somebody who's in pain, somebody who's enduring loss, somebody who's made a mess of their lives. Jesus said, whatever you do for even the least of these, you do for me. Go to that person. Perhaps he's asking you to be significantly more generous towards the work of his church or his kingdom than you're in the habit of being. Jesus patterned this generosity as he gave his all in the service of love. Maybe he's challenging you to name the problem in your workplace that needs addressing and then be the first volunteer to say, hey, I'll help fix that. I'll work on that. It could be that Christ is asking you to invite some friends to go on a spiritual journey with you. Many, many years ago, when I was just 25, I met a young couple, and I had many spiritual conversations with them, and I was privileged to marry them. In fact, it was the very first wedding I ever did. And today, the couple is the couple that founded Villages in Partnership. And all of those kids and those communities that are being transformed are the ripple effect of God's grace. Who is God calling you to pour into? What's the group he's asking you to gather around you? What could he do through that? What could he do through that? Here's the big takeaway for today. God really wants to bless you and others through you. He does things. He still does things like Abraham and Amazon. The church of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest of the things he's done. And he offers you and people that you know the kind of loving encouragement and experience that I had through Martin Griffin. He wants you to be that kind of person in somebody's life. But like any covenant, this one isn't a free lunch. It's not. Not a free lunch. God will bring far more than you ever bring, but you and I need to bring something. So what is that for you? And are you willing to get up and go? Please pray with me. Thank you that you are the God who still calls, Lord. Thank you that you are one who invites us into the magnificent adventure of your unfolding grace, your rippling grace. And so, Lord God, give us a courage and a commitment to follow even thicker than water. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.